Faith, family, freedom, hope, and opportunity. You're listening to Freedom Rings. I'm your host, Senator Marsha Blackburn. Welcome to another podcast of Freedom Rings. And oh, what a wonderful guest we have with us today. And you're going to enjoy hearing his story, Senator Bill Frist. He has truly served Americans and Tennesseans in so many different ways. Uh, as a heart-lung transplant surgeon. He was doing that for 16 years and decided to run for the U.S. Senate in 94, won that election, and then served in the U.S. Senate. In 2002, he became the Senate Majority Leader and served in that capacity for four years. He was the first practicing physician to serve in the U.S. Senate since 1928 when he won that election. Now, he has continued serving his country. Frist Cressy Ventures and chairman of the Executives Council of the health service investment firm Cressy and Company. He's also very active in different medical, humanitarian, and philanthropic communities. And we're delighted to have you with us today, Senator Frist. Thank you. Good. I'm delighted to be with you and your audience. Well, thank you so much. Let's talk a little bit about why you chose to run in 94 and what drew you to politics from the medical career field. Yeah, well, thank you. And it, uh, as I look back, it, it is interesting that I, after 20 years in medicine, jumped to that whole field of government and, and policy. And I grew up, as you know, in Nashville, Tennessee, dad of physician, I went to medical school having no earthly idea that I would ever, first of all, be a surgeon uh, and then a heart surgeon and then much less make that leap to, to uh, politics. You know, and it wasn't healthcare. Everybody says, well, you probably went uh, into med- into the Senate to change healthcare. And that really wasn't it. It was taking what I had done for 20 years, and that is serve individuals one-on-one um, as a physician. Uh, whoever came through that door, uh, treating them equitably in the best way I possibly could, and then doing heart and lung transplants, and then saying, well, what about if you could serve a community that way, or a state that way, or a country that way? And I said, well, the best way to do that is to take that uh, that jump and that leap and run for the United States Senate. And that was 1994, threw my hat in the ring. My dad thought I was crazy. My mother thought I was crazy. Nobody in my family had served in public office or been elected to, to, to office, uh, but took the leap. And it was a very successful leap. And as you served in the Senate, you made some changes that have bettered the lives of people, not only in our state and country, but around the globe. And there was the PEPFAR legislation that you championed and, of course, moved that forward. There was the 2003 Medicare Modernization Act, which opened new doors in Medicare Advantage for our nation's seniors. So touch on PEPFAR and then touch on Medicare Advantage and your work there. 
Yeah, you know, I, I mentioned that I didn't come to Washington to do health care, but at that time I was the first doctor to be elected to the United States Senate in 68 years. The last one had been back around 1925, the last physician. Yet healthcare was at that time 17% of our economy, but no doctors in the Senate, no nurses in the Senate, no medical professionals in the Senate. And therefore, when I came there, people did turn to me. Um, in, in that time, right around 19, in the 1990s, about 3 million people uh, were dying every year, 3 million every year of this little virus called HIV AIDS, which had just appeared about, oh, 20 years before in, in this country. Um, the United States had not done very much globally. We'd, we'd started to address HIV here at home, but not much globally as places like Botswana had an expected life expectancy at 37 years of age, you know, it dropped by 35 years because of this virus. So what we did is got together uh, under President Bush at the time, at the State of the Union message, he said he was gonna create a program working with the majority, which we were, the Republicans were in control of the Senate at that time, but working with both sides of the aisle to make the single largest commitment ever to be made uh, by a president against a, a single disease. Well, that was good, and that was a proclamation, but it took, as you know, the, the United States Senate and the House working hand-in-hand hand to develop that legislation. Being the only physician in the Senate, I took a leadership on that. We developed PEPFAR, which is the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief Around the World. That huge commitment, we passed it. It was a few pages long, but as you can imagine, it was a tough bill to pass. It was passed with Republican leadership, but also Democrats on, on board. And today we can say that there are 20 million people alive because of that single piece of Republican-led uh, legislation, but bipartisan-supported legislation today. And thus it shows exactly what I didn't anticipate, that treating one one-on-one -on -one by me doing heart transplant on somebody and bringing them new life or lung transplant if you participate in the policy arena, you can indeed expand that to thousands of people, hundreds of people, and indeed, as we've seen, 20 million people alive today because of that one piece of legislation. Well, that is a significant impact. And it is something, you know, that uh, when you talk about legacy items and really using public policy to improve the lives of individuals, this is something that uh, you definitely can point to. I want to turn to your podcast. You've started a podcast, A Second Opinion, Rethinking American Health. So I'd love for you to talk just a touch about that podcast and what led, led you to that and kind of the avenue that you're traveling with that podcast? You know, Marcia, it's been really, really interesting. I left the United States Senate now, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, and I asked myself a bunch of questions. And one of those is how I could continue to share what I learned and use the tools that I had gathered to share policies, to share knowledge, to share information, to improve the lives of others. So now, uh, almost four years ago, uh, a couple of years before the onslaught of COVID, a lot of podcasts have sprung up since then. I said, where is there a gap today in, in the health and well-being world, health in the most holistic sense of spiritual health, mental health, physical health? And I said that it's a lack of communication between the government people 
like you and me in Washington, D.C. and the policy people and the business people, the private sector people who have the dynamism, the creativity and moving things along and, and, and addressing solutions through the business, through capitalism, to these problems with the over, overall community of entrepreneurship, of innovation, of creativity. So looking at clinical medicine with the intersection of business, with the intersection of entrepreneurship and policymakers, we put together a podcast. And since that time, we've done a podcast uh, every week, and we have well uh, over 200 podcasts on a second opinion, Rethinking American Health, a second opinion with, with Bill Frist, MD. And with that, it has proved hugely beneficial. Medical schools use it, entrepreneurs, startup, um, capitalists use it, um, nonprofits use it. And for me, it's a great experience because, as you know, just like this, you get to learn from others as you go through that daily interaction. So it comes out every Monday and um, people go back and listen to the ones before uh, over time. And with that, I encourage people to check out the second opinion with Senator Bill Friss, MD. Well, that certainly is something that we hear a good bit about in DC as we look at delivery systems for healthcare and the development and utilization of different technologies in the virtual space and how blockchain is going to figure into this, how uh, telehealth is going to figure in to delivery of healthcare. What, where do you see the future of healthcare traveling in the next 10 years? Well, you know, you've been a real leader, both in the, the, the technology supporting uh, uh, health, health delivery, health service delivery, especially in the digital world. And you mentioned blockchain, which in a, a disaggregating way a, that protects privacy, I think, has huge opportunity. <clears throat> About 10 years ago, I, I came on board with a fledgling little idea called Teladoc. And uh, Teladoc um, um, is now the largest telemedicine company in the world. And it was before, I, I should say, it was before uh, in terms of reaching people, even before COVID, but with COVID it expanded. And the advantage, the advantage of, of, of teledoc and telemedicine, and remember, it's just a tool by itself, but it enables the health service people, providers, the, the nurses, the counselors, the doctors, to connect directly with people wherever they are at the point they need the care, especially in areas like rural health or where there might be barriers of access to health care by distance in terms of remoteness. Or if somebody can't afford the bills that come out of emergency rooms, telemedicine has been revolutionary in terms of improving access, lowering cost, improving safety, and improving overall quality of care. And we've all seen that. It's all touched us. Uh, during uh, COVID. Uh, technology in the behavioral health field is exploding. Um, I right now work with Frisk Cressy Ventures, as you mentioned, and with that, we have three different companies that are using digital technology, delivering health and healthcare and medicines to people who have these barriers who otherwise would not have that access. So one of the great, there's a conversation we have on our podcast frequently between government officials and the policymakers, you know, what is the role of adequate reimbursement with the entrepreneurs in these startup companies who are reaching out in ways that we never thought of possible with the clinicians who want that care extended 
to remote areas, to our senior population, to people underserved in underserved communities, which before they did not have the tools to do. Well, it certainly closes the access to health care gap. But as we talk about some of this innovation, it takes a trained workforce. And I know that you have an, an organization score that is focused on improving education for our children. So uh, touch on what you are doing with SCORE. Yeah, you know, Mark, when I left um, back in 2006, when I left Washington and I came back to Middle Tennessee, I had seen the, the power and, and how important it is to have good public policy that sets the guide rails for the private sector and the individual responsibility and capitalism and, and opportunities to, to flourish. And so one area that I focused on, and I think it is probably even though people look at me as a heart transplant surgeon and a, and a doctor and, a, and, and the PEPFAR, I think I'm coming back to education, early childhood education, K through 12 education, that transition from, from 12 to, to a community college and then to, to career readiness. That is the area that I focused on. So a group of us now uh, about 12 years ago set up an organization called SCORE, State Collaborative on Reform of Education, S-C-O-R-E. It's in Tennessee. And basically, we said we wanted to give every child that opportunity to become career ready and to have that knowledge to graduate from high school and give them that opportunity and empower them. And that was the goal. At that time, Tennessee was 48th in the state on the nation's report card or the NAEP scores and testing and through a lot of hard work and wording, working at the state level in all 95 counties, almost in a campaign style, we worked with local schools and local businesses and local employers to support teachers, to support schools, to make sure that every child did have that opportunity with barriers removed. And subsequent to that, over the ensuing 12 years, Tennessee has gone from 48th to 45th in the country to 43rd in the country to 30th to about 25th, about at the median. So we're not at the top, and we're not in the top quartile, but we've gone from the very bottom to the middle of the pack. And we, as you know, have a long way to go. But that was the purpose of SCORE. SCORE is, is a, a large organization, continues to work hard in support of teachers, using data to be able to see what works and what doesn't work and to empower students with the knowledge and the opportunities that they deserve, every student in Tennessee that deserves that, that career readiness perch. And that may be right after high school or it may be community college or it may be after training beyond that, but to make sure they have the appropriate education. And having that appropriate education, removing those barriers, is what opens those doors of opportunity and allows young people to dream those big dreams and find a way to make them come true. So uh, as I've talked with educators around the state, many times they mention how grateful they are for, first of all, the leadership that you brought to the issue, and then secondly, the attention and resources that you brought to the issue of education and educating our students. 
so that they know how to make those decisions to move forward on a career path. And, you know, that's one of the reasons people are now choosing to live and work and rear their family. And you see generational work in so many of our communities across the state. It does make a big difference. Um, have to ask you, since our podcast is Freedom Rings, talk. what does freedom mean to you when you think about it? Why is it worth the fight? You know, I've given it a lot of thought from, from my early days in, in health and, and health care where we, we were able to build the largest heart transplant program in the world here at, at Vanderbilt through my 12 years in, in Washington and for the last 15 or 16 years outside. And because my life is centered so much on, on health and hope and healing, the first thing I come to, uh, really after education, that, that every child has that opportunity, the freedom to, to get a good education, is this whole world of health and, and having every person have the freedom to, to have these barriers removed, to have a just and fair opportunity to receive the very best of the journey in health and health care that they can possibly receive. And, you know, people today and sort of the political world call it health equity, but it's, and that complicates things because people are thinking all sorts of connotations around it. But when I look at sort of the freedom that they would knock down those barriers of people to get a just opportunity to be as healthy as possible and a fair opportunity to be as healthy as possible, and it means such things as, as improving access and, and having health care that they can afford. There's not a barrier that keeps them from getting help and health care for their child who, who might be ill. And that's what we need. And it doesn't require big government. It doesn't require shackles of regulations, which are, which are, which are you know, sort of bleeding to death and, and strangling our, our physicians and our nurses and our, our facilities. But giving, tearing down those sorts of barriers and open up the opportunities for that just and fair uh, chance to be as healthy as you possibly can be. And certainly your emphasis from the time of working to establish that heart-lung transplant unit and build it into the facility that it became and focusing on health, healthy bodies, healthy lifestyles, healthy mindsets, and using that to fuel hope and opportunity has made a difference for millions of people. You are a relentless freedom fighter, and we are blessed to have had you serve our state and our nation. And I know you're going to continue looking for those ways to move forward. So if anyone is wanting to find out more about the work that you're doing, they'll find you on Twitter at B. Frist, on Facebook at Senator Bill Frist, and your website, BillFrist.com, and that podcast, A Second Opinion on ASO Podcast. I'm Marsha Blackburn. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Freedom Rings.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Freedom Rings. You can follow me on Twitter at Vote Marsha, Facebook at Marsha Blackburn for Senate, and on Instagram at Team Marsha. And you can always find us online at MarshaBlackburn.com. The Freedom Rings podcast is edited and produced by Jared Cummings. Executive producers are Conservative Partnership Center and Marsha Blackburn. Together, we make Freedom Ring.